Well, good morning, everyone. How are Turn it on. There we go. All set up. Yes, it's, uh, I don't think it's an easy book, is it? If you just take a superficial look at it. But the more you look at this great uh, book in the Old Testament, it, it's just got some wonderful gems, hasn't it? And uh, such a clear preview of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, every time we open the book of Isaiah, we should be thinking that. How does this point to Jesus? Um, and we're going to have a think about that today as well. So Winston Churchill was once asked to give the qualifications of someone who would succeed in politics. And he said, it, would, it is the ability to foretell what's going to happen tomorrow and the next day and the next week and the next month and the next year. And then to have the ability afterwards to explain why it didn't happen. Um, we could probably relate to that given our political context as well. Um, but when it comes to God's prophets, they didn't have to do any corrections. They didn't have to explain why things didn't happen because it always did. Because God's word hasn't got mistakes. It's God's word, it's not the prophet's word. So what God said um, is true. And uh, there's no mistakes. And it's not just about predicting the future. When we think about prophecy in the Old Testament, sometimes we think it's all about the future. Um, we forget about that it has a context and there was much about what Isaiah had to say that was real and relevant to the people of his day and to the generations, the immediate generations that followed. It's not just about the future, it's about the prophet drawing attention to people's mindset and actions and what is the inevitable, often the inevitable, or the likely consequences of their actions. And he's calling his hearers, like the other prophets, to repentance and to change their lives now in the light of God's character and God's plan and God's purposes. So he had an urgent message for his people, the people of his day. And uh, sometimes there was a message for those who were not yet his people. And remember too that prophecies have multiple fulfilments and I think we've probably seen that to some degree already in our study in Isaiah that there are different uh, time frames if you like or levels of fulfilment. There was real significance in the time of Isaiah. Uh, his word, the prophecy of Isaiah, had real relevance to the people of his day, um, to the original recipients. But then there was another level of, of fulfilment, and that is with the coming of Jesus. So you see pictured in, in what we're going to look at today, the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And so there's a level of fulfilment that happened when Jesus came. But there's also a level of fulfilment that is yet to happen at the coming of Jesus when he comes again. And uh, for the re original recipients of Isaiah's message, um, all of the prophecy was future for them, uh, had meaningful significance for them, a call to change their lives. Uh, for us, most of the prophecies have happened. I think when we read, sometimes we read books like Isaiah, we think that most of it is all yet in the future, sort of somehow disconnected with the people to whom Isaiah was proclaiming this message to. There is still some to be fulfilled and it's exciting to think about it. 
but most of it has taken place. And yet, the message of Isaiah still challenges us today. Just a little bit of a recap. When did it happen? When did he uh, uh, prophesy? Well, you can see there in that diagram, um, Isaiah is around about 740 to about the 680s BC. Uh, you see there the kingdom is divided. So uh, there that diagram starts with the judges and then you see in about 1050 the, the, the time of the kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon and then King Solomon's son uh, basically uh, was the catalyst for the, the, the splitting of the kingdom. Um, Rehoboam in the south, the southern kingdom of Judah and Jeroboam the first in the northern kingdom. Then in 722, uh, the uh, northern kingdom was uh, overcome by the Assyrian kingdom and taken away, exiled. And then finally in 586, uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, was exiled to Babylon. Um, There's a little bit about the split between the northern kingdom. You see the dotted line above Jerusalem there. See how it takes in some of what's called Jordan today. Um, and Isaiah uh, prophesied during the reigns of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. And he was, uh, he was, his ministry was in the context of Judah, the southern kingdom, but it was against the, the, the shadow of the rising threat of this world power called Assyria, the Assyrian kingdom. And because of their constant rebellion, really over centuries, Judah, the southern kingdom, would eventually be exiled to Babylon after the Babylonian kingdom itself had conquered the Assyrian kingdom. Okay, uh, a couple of time periods. Historically, he, he, the first 39 chapters, in a sense, covered uh, Isaiah's time in the 8th century BC, Isaiah 40 to 55, then when, Isaiah, when Israel's uh, exiled in Babylon, and then chapters 56 to 66 are focus on after the exiles return to the land. Now, there's some great themes in the book of Isaiah. Does anyone remember what Isaiah's name means? The Lord saves. Salvation is of the Lord. And that's the big theme. If you want to take away one thing from Isaiah, it's that God delights to save undeserving sinners who we are. But by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, we've seen the salvation of God. Um, and so in Isaiah, you get these alternating sort of themes. You've got confronted with the sin of his people, God's people, arousing the wrath of God, bringing about judgment, threat of judgment. But then you see the grace of God coming in time and time again, because God is a loving God. On the one hand, his holy character responds to sin and must judge sin. But on the other side, God is a God of love and wants to reach out to people who are unworthy and wants to save sinners. And so those themes you'll see alternate throughout the whole book of Isaiah. And his message was for Judah, but it was also for Israel, and it was also for the nations, and we're going to see that today. And uh, so this, you, know, you could read through it and think, this is all about God's judgment. But time and time there are pictures of his grace, God's redeeming activity and central to this salvation that Isaiah is talking about is the coming of the Messiah the coming of the Messiah a servant king who will firstly suffer for the sins of his people and then he will be exalted to glory in glory and so Isaiah presents God who is one who is worthy of our trust 
and uh, he's the redeemer and he rescues sinners from judgment. Um, and in the first five chapters, you see that uh, where Bill brought this to us, the depth of Judah's sinfulness. Judah is confronted with their sinfulness. That's not a bad thing for us all, to be confronted with our, our hearts, the state of our hearts. And in those first five chapters, we see the judgment that they deserve and is coming. But then we see the grace that God promises to bring them into the world. And God promises this branch of the Lord, the Messiah, the establishment ultimately of God's kingdom and the redemption of his people. And so there's this wonderful theme of grace. And then Lindsay uh, brought to us last week, and, and I think it really covers into this week as well, salvation through judgment and discipline for God's people. Yes, when we start through from chapter 6 through to chapter 12, you'll see much about judgment. But it's also about God's amazing grace. And when we come to chapter 6, we see that this grace of God begins with Isaiah himself. And Isaiah is, in chapter 6, is, is uh, cleansed and he's commissioned to proclaim God's message. And he becomes a bit of a pattern, really, for all of those um, who will be redeemed. And what do we see? What did we see? What did, remember what uh, Lindsay brought to us? Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up on the throne. He gets a, a picture of the holiness. Um, you'll bring Gordon here this morning about the holiness of God. And he, bring, he sees this picture of this God who is set apart from every other being. He is the Lord of all the earth. And in that blaze of the holiness of God, Isaiah realises his own sinfulness. Uh, he cannot but look within and see that he is unworthy, he is unclean. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell with a people, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But then something wonderful happens. He knows that he deserves God's judgment. He knows because God is holy that he re his holy character reacts against sin and incurs the wrath of a righteous God. But what happens? Isaiah is cleansed and I, he's commissioned, he's restored. How? Through the sacrifice on the altar. And, you know, he sets a pattern for the people of God, Judah, the remnant that will be preserved. And he sets a pattern for us today as well. That if we are going to know God's forgiveness, then firstly we need to see the holiness of God. And if we really get a picture of that, we will see how sinful our hearts really are. And under the spotlight of that holiness, we will see clearly that we just don't deserve God's grace. We deserve his judgment. But God in grace has offered us salvation. How? Through the one Isaiah points to. Right through the whole book of Isaiah, he's constantly pointing to this Messiah, this one who has come, the servant king, who would be exalted to firstly suffer and then be exalted in glory. It's through Jesus, Jesus himself. And by accepting Jesus, his death and burial and resurrection, we come to have our sins forgiven. And the choice is ours, of course. God tells Isaiah that um, the people won't accept, mainly, mostly the people won't accept his word. They must, you know, I would have thought that would be really discouraging. But there will be a remnant. God will preserve a people who will be faithful, who will turn to him and not trust in these world powers and not trust in anything other than the God, the Holy One of Israel. And so then we see this sign that's given in, in uh, chapters 7 to 10 
or the early part of chapter 10, this sign. What was the sign? Remember what the sign was? A son. A son who would be given. A child that would be born to a virgin. His name would be Emmanuel, God with us. And, uh, in, you know, this sign really was a, both a sign of promise, but is also a sign of judgment. To the people of faith, to the people who really trusted in God, this remnant, this, this son that was given, probably fulfilled in the second son of Isaiah, which his name was? Mal Shaul Hazbaz, or Baza for short. I'm sure, I'm sure if you go to Kenya, you'll probably find a... Maha Shalal Hashbaz, Hashbaz, but um, probably fulfilled in him, but ultimately again points to Jesus. Undoubtedly, when we put our New Testament lenses on and we see through the book of, for instance, the Gospel of Matthew, we see this taking up this very verse and pointing to Jesus that he is the ultimate one. He is literally God with us. So to the, to the people of faith, this sign would be uh, a, a reminder that God was with his people, that God was really caring for them. And that ultimately these powers to the north, the northern kingdom and Syria, would, they wouldn't be around for very long. And it would also be a sign that God loved them and cared for them. But equally, this would be a sign to those who rejected God that judgment is coming for those who do not have faith. Okay, and then we come to chapter 10 and we see that as God has used this mighty Assyrian kingdom to punish or discipline his people, now he says what's going to happen to them. He is going to judge Assyria, his instrument of discipline for his people. So let's have a look at this. Um, He begins, he says, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. Who was that? His people. I dispatch him against a people who anger me. He's talking about Israel and Judah. And in his sovereignty, God is going to use this, um, he uses this mighty Assyrian kingdom he's going to use to punish or to discipline his people, but then he would not permit this kingdom, this people, to exalt themselves above his purpose. And so he refers to um, Assyria as he's like a, like a carpenter would refer to a tool in his, in his toolbox. And, and, and he talks about Assyria being the rod, the, his club, um, a little bit later his axe, his, uh, his saw, and uh, this mighty world power, superpower, in, from God's perspective, it was just a tool in his hand. They thought they were mighty. They thought that they boasted about their conquests, but they didn't give glory to God. And God is going to come down in judgment upon them. He will punish the king of Syria for the willful pride in his heart. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that these people um, were exempt from responsibility for their actions. Um, They have responsibility. They are accountable. It's interesting, isn't it? Though we don't really understand it fully, uh, it's a truth that we find in Scripture that... um, God is in control. He governs mankind. Yet without compromising the freedom of choice that we have as individuals, and it never lessens the accountability that we have before him. Okay? So even though he's weaving his hand, hands in the affairs of this world, even today he is sovereign, it does not exempt us, it does not exempt us as individuals of 
our responsibility to respond to him in faith. Now, because of their arrogant attitude, God would judge them. And he talks about... Um, now, interestingly, this is the other thing. is that a serious, uh, God wanted to, to, to uh, discipline his people. What did Assyria want to do? wanted to destroy them completely. And God was not going to allow that to happen. And uh, so he says, this is how it's going to happen. And he, he has two images here of his judgment. It's like a wasting disease and like a fire, like a blazing forest fire. And God's wrath would come upon this proud nation. Just as they appear to be in the ascendancy in world affairs, God's going to single-handedly, this Lord God of hosts, he's going to bring them low. He's going to bring them low. He's going to cut them down like trees. I think there it is in verse 33, 34 of chapter 10. Um, see the Lord, the, the Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs of great power. The lofty trees will be felled, the tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. And in the, in the days of Hezekiah, the last king uh, in the period in which uh, Isaiah ministered, um, God would wipe out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And uh, ultimately the great Assyrian kingdom fell to Babylon in about 609 BC. So God's going to judge this nation. It's, he's used it as his tool to chasten his people, but now he's going to judge them. But, but this is it. God is going to save a remnant of his people. There will be a number of people, a small number of people, who will turn to him and believe in him and the promises that he has made. Um, in that day, verse 20 to 22, chapter 10, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, that's Assyria, but will truly rely on later Babylon, but will rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people, O Israel, be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will return. Um, and in verses 28 to 32, Isaiah traces the advance of this great army that's advancing on Judah and Jerusalem. And what does he say to the people of Jerusalem? O oh, my people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians. Isaiah gave that same message to the king Hezekiah when the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem in 701 BC. And uh, God used Assyria to discipline his people, but he would not permit them to go beyond his purpose. And God may use unbelievers to discipline his people. That's interesting, isn't it? God may allow that to happen. But he's always in control. Okay? He's always in control. And as children in God's family, God will discipline us. We shouldn't be afraid or fear that disciplining hand of God. We were in chapter 12 of Hebrews this morning in the first service. And there's a, if you want to read about the discipline of God, read that particular chapter. When we come to chapter 11, um, here the Lord is going to restore this uh, people. How's he going to do it? Well, in contrast to the proud trees that God's going to cut down, this Assyrian um, kingdom, like felling the trees of the forest, in contrast, when we come to chapter 11, there's this image of a little branch or a little shoot that's coming up. And who is that or what is that? What does it say? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. 
So, Isaiah is looking beyond his people's trials to a glorious kingdom will be established when the Messiah, who is this um, stump or this branch or this root of the house of David, just when it seems like David's dynasty is about to end, out of his family will come this shoot, this branch. It's Jesus himself ultimately. A godly remnant will be preserved to preserve this nation until Messiah comes. And there's God working his plan. Nothing will thwart his plan. No power on this earth will thwart the plan of God. And this remnant will, of faithful Jews will continue to keep this nation alive until the Messiah, this stump of Jesse, will come. And this Messiah will be, we're told in this chapter, that he'll be wonderfully equipped with the Spirit of the Lord. And we find that at the Lord's baptism, that the Spirit of God coming upon him. He will rule in righteousness. He will rule um, and there'll be ultimately a restored kingdom. This is a chapter in verse uh, 11, of verse, chapter 11, verse 1, of verse 6, I should say. Um, you probably remember these verses. They're often quoted. Um, but the thing about these verses, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie in him with the goat, etc. The thing, the thing here is it's a, it's a creation restored to harmony again as it was before sin entered into the world. And at the end there we see, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the nucleus of this kingdom will be a regathered and a reunited people. Uh, Verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse will stand. So we know that that's speaking now of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. He will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him in his place of rest will be glorious. The Lord will reach out and gather his people from the nations where they've been exiled. It'll be like a second exodus. Remember when um, the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt and delivered across the Red Sea. Um, This will be like a second exodus. And in part, there's a partial fulfilment here, when the Jews left the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so at the... But it ultimately will be at the end of the age when the Messiah gathers, regathers his people. And there the, the long-standing centuries of division between the northern and the southern kingdom um, will be over, will be at an end. And even the Gentiles will walk, um, even the Gentiles will walk on this highway that leads to Jerusalem. Chapter 12 um, is a song. And you see there... Um, this, this brings this sort of section to an end. Salvation through discipline for God's people. There's judgment, yes, but there's God's grace. It begins with Isaiah and it spreads to the remnant of God's people and then ultimately leads to a day of praise and a song of salvation. Just two things I want to pick up from here. The first thing is the theme of God's anger and we see that in the, the previous 11 chapters. God's anger, God's wrath against sin. But notice what he says here in verse 1 of chapter 12. In that day you will say, I will praise you. O Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Um, All through Isaiah, you'll you'll read about God's, the anger of the Lord was kindled, the anger of the Lord was kindled. But then you see the promises that he makes. Um, My fury will come to an end. And then finally we come to this point where a restored people will sing about the wonderful um, salvation of God. And after anger comes comfort. And if you, you know, that's almost a little um, summary of the book of Isaiah. 
you've got um, the first 39 chapters where, where the great theme is about God's judgment and God's anger. But then you come to chapter 40 onwards and it's about God's comfort and God's love for his people. And if Jesus is your saviour today, you can sing this song too. Is Jesus your saviour? Because we believe in Jesus and he's the one who turned away God's anger, God's wrath that was on us and said, let it fall on me instead. And because of that wrath that was borne by the Lord Jesus Christ, God offers us eternal comfort today. Are you enjoying that? The eternal comfort of God through Jesus Christ. And the second great theme here in this song is about God's salvation. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And this ultimately refers to the day when Israel will be gathered, regathered and reunited under the righteous reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, This song, The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation. Does it ring a bell with you in other parts of scripture? Whereabouts? Habakkuk? Moses? Moses? What happened? The Red Sea. So after they crossed the Red Sea and they were delivered, what did they sing? They sang this, The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation. And then there's another one which is when uh, it was future for this period that Isaiah was talking about, be sung in Jerusalem when the second temple will be, uh, was dedicated under the leadership of Ezra, the priest. And in Psalm 118, we read these words again. It'll be sung again when the Jewish nation accepts Jesus Christ as their king, as their Messiah. As you know, most of the Jews today um, have a... You know, a real blindness to the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. But praise God, there is a remnant. There is a people who uh, call themselves Messianics, Messianic believers. They believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah, the true Messiah. And when we call upon the Lord Jesus today, individually, uh, who saved us from what our sins deserve, we too can sing that he has become my salvation. Okay. I want to get to the last section, and uh, it's in chapters 13, not through to 23, you'll be pleased to know. But this section um, in chapter 13 really begins, the focus now changes from God's people to the nations surrounding them, okay? So the first five chapters, condemnation and hope for God's people. From chapter 6 then to chapter 12, salvation through judgment or discipline for God's people. And then the focus now begins, God is going to have something to say about the nations that are surrounding them. We're just going to look at two, make two points in relation to the destruction of Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom, and the Assyrian kingdom, which we've been thinking a little bit about that today. The thing about this is, if there's one point to take away, it is that God is in control. He is sovereign. Um, He is the judge who judges all the nations of the earth. He's the one who moves history along according to his purpose. Um, Israel needs to learn that their God is the the Holy One of Israel. He's the judge. He's the saviour. He's the mover behind the ruling of this world. And only he is worthy of their trust. And uh, so this particular chapter, uh, these two chapters, chapter 13 and 14, uh, firstly he starts with Babylon. And what he's saying is, look... 
Judah and Israel are not the only ones who are going to have a divine appointment with this Holy One of Israel. These nations around them will also have an encounter with the living God. And this is what we open with in verse 1. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. And the first nation in the firing line is Babylon. And this is the first time it's mentioned in Isaiah. At this point in time, what was Babylon? Insignificant. Certainly not a world power. Who was the world power at this point in time? Assyria. But here, because this is the word of God. This is not something Isaiah made up. But God could see that the Babylonian kingdom was going to be, in many ways, more of a problem for his people in Judah. They'd been worrying about Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, Egypt and Assyria. But their thinking has been conditioned by the immediate crisis that they're in. But God can see further and he sees that Babylon's going to have a far bigger part to play in Judah's history. And I suspect that this would have been um, encouraging to some extent to the people of faith before the Babylonian exile as they saw the rise of this mighty power who conquered the Assyrian kingdom, this Babylonian empire, that if they read this, they would have been encouraged to think, well, we... God's already got it planned. This is in the plan of God. They mightn't have seen it coming, but this new superpower did not take the Lord by surprise. And all he needed to do when the time came was to, to, to dis- destroy Babylon, was to use another kingdom. And so what did he do? Verse 17, See, I will stir up against them the Medes. And so that came to pass in about 538 BC, something like that when the Medes and the Persians um, conquered the Babylonian kingdom. And so God is able to do this. He set aside a day for judgment for this particular kingdom. And it would be for their evil. Their evil was in two ways, two things, um, pride and ruthlessness. Pride and ruthlessness. What is pride? Well, in the next chapter, he gives us uh, an example of pride when he speaks about the king of Babylon. You've probably heard these verses as well. How far have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Notice all the I words in there. I will ascend, I will raise, I will sit, I will ascend, I will make myself. You see, that's pride. That's an example of pride. To be like God, to be first, to be in charge, to do exactly as we wish. That's pride. Selfishness is at the very core of that thing. Pride. Now, does this language also speak about Satan? Because in the authorised version, King James, you'll probably have it there that says, instead of morning star, it says Lucifer. So many people have thought that this um, prophecy is speaking about Satan. Um, But in the NIV you'll see that it uses morning star, in the ESV the day star, and it really literally means shining star. Does it speak about Satan? Well, perhaps, but there is no direct link. And in fact the context of which we often ignore If you go back to the beginning of chapter 14, very clearly it says this is a taunt against the king of Babylon. And if you go to the verses after this, you'll find that it speaks about a man. 
So very clearly, this is poetic language describing the fall, a taunt against the king of Babylon. Now, undoubtedly, behind the actions of the king of Babylon was the evil one's influence. Does it speak about Satan? Perhaps, but there's no direct link. But certainly, his influence was there. And Babylon will disappear like like someone grabbing a broom and just sweeping out the dust. From God's perspective, the one who's in control of everything, he will just sweep them out like a broom. But this should be encouraging to Judah because Babylon's fall will mark a change in their fortunes as well. And they'll return to their own land. This is what 14.1 says, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. And so this people will come back from Babylonian captivity and they will taunt rather than fear the king of Babylon because he will be overthrown. And then finally, we have in verses 24 to 27 of chapter 14, the crushing of Assyria. So he comes back to Assyria. He said a lot about Assyria already, so he just takes three ver- four verses sorry, to tell uh, the people that this kingdom is going to be crushed. Notice there in, in bold there, I will crush the Assyrian in my land, I will trample him down. And then he goes on to say, see there, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? These verses again tell us about the power and the sovereignty of our God. Has he changed? No, he's still the same God. He's still in control. So what can we take away today as we've thought through this passage of God's word? Wonderful passage. It really requires work though, doesn't it? Diligence to look into it and to try and understand what was the message in Isaiah's day. But what's the challenge to me today? These are some of the challenges that I've thought of as I've looked through it. We need to have a fresh appreciation of God, the character of God. In the early part of Isaiah, we are confronted with the awesome holiness of God. In the passage we've looked at today, the focus seems to me to be on the sovereignty of our God. He's in control. He's, he, nothing can thwart God's plan. God has a plan of redemption and it doesn't matter how big the superpower is. It doesn't matter how big. God's plan will not be thwarted. God is in control. And sometimes I think we look at our lives and we say, how often have you said this, it's chaotic? It's out of control. Mel had a bit of a week like that this week, didn't you, Mel? And um, it's out of control. You start to wonder, is God really in control or is he, is he just sort of distant? And if you are thinking that, and I suspect we've all thought that from time to time, then you need to go back to Isaiah and read this passage again and be thrilled to know that God is in control. He hasn't changed. He still has his plan. His purpose will not be thwarted. It will come to pass and you can be part of that and you can trust him because he is worthy of your trust this week. How will that be evident in your life? I don't know. But in a week's time, when you look back on this week, if, you are, if I ask the question, what evidence is in there of your life of trusting God this week? What would you say? It's a challenge, isn't it? We've also seen that God never forsakes his people. doesn't matter how difficult the days get, doesn't matter how long the nights for the people of God, he'll never forsake his people. We should take comfort in that. God has not abandoned us. He's for us. And we should go back to Isaiah and see that God was going to save his people, a remnant unto himself.
I think the other thing we need to see is just how sinful we really are. Um, we don't like to look at this. We really want to steer away from this, don't we? That's our thinking. But yet, when we look into Isaiah, you cannot help but think how sinful humanity is. And as you think about how sinful these people were with their rebellion, hypocrisy, idolatry, spiritual uh, adultery, injustices perpetrated, this is what God confronts his people with, not to mention the people around in the nations. Um, today we've seen the sin of pride. Is that the sin that consumes you and me? The sin of pride, really it's selfishness. It can, you, you know, it can come in various ways, can't it? We can think, my boss should recognise me. You know, I'm the most important employee. The work that I do, the place would just collapse without me. That's pride. Wouldn't it be great if everyone admired me at church? That's pride. Or this one, I've got enough money now to have what I've always wanted. That's pride. Nobody tells me what to do. That's pride. It's a language of pride. and We look in our own hearts, whatever the sin that consumes us, we'll see that when under the spotlight of God's holiness, it will sicken us. And we need to know that that sin arouses the wrath of God, his unwavering opposition to all evil. It's just about who he is. It's not a tantrum. It's about his consistent opposition because of his holy character. And because he's just, he must judge the sin that confronts him. And it's what we all deserve. It's what the people of God deserved. And our appropriate response is to say, I repent. I'm going to agree with God. That's what repentance means. It means to have a change of mind. And now I'm agreeing with God about it. And I think this generation, our generation, has lost sight of this, the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And often doesn't enter into our preaching at all, but Isaiah, I think, reminds us to have a look at that, to see how sinful we are and to see the consequences of our sin. But we don't stop there. We need to realise that we deserve judgment, but God offers us grace and mercy. And just as Isaiah found that, so we can find that. Have you found that mercy of God, forgiveness that God offers through Jesus Christ? We're healed, we're cleansed, we're made right with God through the sacrifice on the altar. That's the sacrifice once and for all of Jesus Christ. He took our sins, he bore the judgment so that we might have forgiveness, acceptance and real peace. Have you accepted the offer of God? Also reminds us too that even in our Christian lives, God will discipline us. We talked about that a little bit as well. It's always for our own good. We pass through times where we feel that God is disciplining us, chastening us. It's because he's shaping us to be more like Jesus, his son. Because that's what we're going to ultimately be like in character, like him, like Jesus. And so God says, now this is the time when I want to shape you in your life, whatever time you have left, to be more like Jesus. And I think the last thing is this, we need to be encouraged about our future. One day Jesus will come again and he'll reign in righteousness. All injustices will be righted. Judgment will be passed. Sin will be eradicated. Creation will be restored. And those who have faith in Jesus are going to be with him forever. You look forward to that? Yes, particularly as you get older, isn't it? I've noticed that. As you get older, you seem to concentrate on the hope that we have, the future. And the younger you are, the more it's like, what about now? What about now? But, you know, there it is. We're going to be forever with him, praising him, worshipping, obeying him, enjoying him forever. There's no more struggle with sin. Wow, that's great. No more pain, no more suffering, no more aches and pains, no more death. No more tears. 
What a day that will be. Isaiah reminds us of this certain hope that the people of God, the faithful remnant, will have. Hold that close to your heart this week. May be precious to you, but also be encouraged to live out this week under the Lordship of Christ now. Now, and what that means, in our present experience right now. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, thank you that as we wrestle with your word, we see marvellous truths about who you are, about your holy character, and a reminder that you, also that you are sovereign, you're in control. And that though sin arouses the wrath of a righteous God and judgment is a result of that, yet you in your grace and your love for us have provided a way for forgiveness. Father, I just pray for everyone here today that we can say, we can sing that song and rejoice that you are my salvation. The Lord Jesus is my salvation. Help us, Father, to live it out this week, to take these things that we've learned from Isaiah and put them into practice so that we won't be the same people that we were last week. It will be, we'll be a people who are becoming more like our Saviour. So help us, we pray, because we cannot do it in our own strength, but with the enabling of your Holy Spirit, we can yield to him and find transformation in our lives. We pray to that end, Father, as we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.